Well, hello again. Uh, I'm excited. I always get excited when we start a new series and uh, and you're ready to jump into what the Lord is going to prepare. And this series is kind of a little bit different. I've never done anything quite like this before. Uh, if you haven't been here for a couple weeks or maybe you're here for the first time, uh, several weeks ago we pulled the church. We took about two weeks where we put things out on the, on the chairs and people could write down their favorite passage or their favorite verse or maybe a favorite story from the Bible and something they've either uh, really been drawn to or just something they've been interested or heard about and kind of like to hear about it more. And I'll admit, as, as we got, as I went through many of the, the or I went through all of them um, and started putting them together, some of the things I saw, I, I kind of expected. And then there were a few, I think some of y'all just wanted to play Stump the Chump and and uh, so I look forward to those because uh, there's some passage of Scripture I've read and I've become familiar with, but I've never taught on or preached on. Um, but that's not so this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be turning our attention to a very familiar passage for many people, whether you've grown up in church or are just familiar with um, some stories from the Bible. And it comes out of Genesis chapter 6, and it deals with Noah and the flood, or Noah and the ark, as, as many have uh, become familiar in calling it. And uh, even though we may know this story, may be familiar with it, may have heard it since you were a child, my prayer for these sort of passages as we deal with them is not only to um, become renewed in understanding the passage, but also get a deeper understanding of what God is really trying to teach us as His people and what is going on in the passage and, and, and how we can apply it to our life. And that goes with Noah and the flood. You're probably uh, at least seen movies or TV depictions of Noah and the flood. Um, if you've ever been to any other church, um, a lot of churches seem to put a mural of Noah and the flood in their nursery or their children's wing, which always makes me laugh. Because if you ever see one of these, these paintings, you see Noah, who's always presented as a guy with a white beard and all these animals, and they're all happy. And, and the, the ark looks like a wooden carnival cruise, and they're all just happy and joyous, just floating along. And I read the story and, and what came about in bringing the flood upon the earth, and I think, man, I just don't know if that's where Noah was. Um, I imagine there was a lot of fear. This is something that never happened before, and which we're going to see is never going to happen again. And Noah was called to do something that in our day and age, we'd want to ask, what? Why? What does that look like? How's that going to happen? What, what's going to happen to me? What do you want me to do with all these things? And, and we want the details. And what we see about Noah is he's just a very faithful individual. Um, the passage begins in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis is the first book of the Old Testament, first book of the Bible. And the story of the flood actually runs through Genesis chapter 9. So for the sake of time, we're not actually going to read the entire story of the, of the ark. And I encourage you, if you'd like to, you can go and read that later uh, this afternoon. We're going to really look at some key parts to get an understanding of what's going on. And uh, one of the questions that came along with wanting to talk about Noah and the flood was uh, some of the other thoughts to go along with the flood. So we're going to deal with those as we ask some questions. Um, the flood really happens relatively, or I shouldn't even say relatively, but just early in Scripture. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, that's when God created everything. Uh, beginning of chapter 2, God creates the seventh day, the day of Sabbath, the holy day, sets it apart. And then Genesis chapter 2, we get a more detailed description of God creating man and woman. And that's because uh, we are image bearers of God. We were created in His image, and so we are to represent who God is by the way we live our life. 
Genesis chapter 3, you have Cain and Abel, and then things quickly begin to, or you have, you have the fall of man in Genesis chapter 4, you have Cain and Abel, and things quickly to start, start to disintegrate. As you come to Genesis chapter 6, it seems like it's really early that God starts hitting the reset button when it comes to the flood. But if you look in Genesis chapter 5, and Genesis chapter 5 is one of those chapters in the Bible, if you're reading through it, um, you're probably going to be tempted just to like, you know, speed read at that point in time, because there's a lot of names. They begat so-and-so, they begat so-and-so, and then they died. They other, had other sons and daughters, and, and it goes on and on and on and on. And what we get as we go through Genesis chapter 5, we actually can put together, it's about 1,500 to 1,600 years since the fall of man in the garden. And so that's a lot of time. It's just all condensed within a chapter with names that is really trying to get us from Seth to Noah. Now the setting to the flood begins in chapter 6 in, in verse 1, but we're going to begin in verse 5. And it starts by saying that when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Verse 7, then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind from whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. Verse 8 says, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. And the first thing I want us to see as we begin our discussion concerning the flood begins there in verse 5. When the Lord saw. And we can read over that so quickly, but what it tells us is the Lord took a personal matter and a personal account and a personal investigation of what was going on in the earth. Beginning in chapter 6, the earth has become corrupt. It has become wicked. The, the, the slogan there that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and every inclination of human mind was nothing but evil is to tell us that mankind in and of itself was only thinking of ways of committing sin. Every thought they had was, how can we sin more? Every, every deed they lived out was in an act of sin. Everything was in rebellion to God. What we come into chapter 6 is a world in which was opposing its creator. They wanted nothing to do with God, wanted nothing to live for God. And so when God saw them, when he investigated them, when he came and looked upon them, his heart was grieved. He regretted it. Some translation says he repented or he was sorry, there in verse 6. And those aren't really adequate uh, words. See, that Hebrew word that I read is regret in verse 6 is a hard Hebrew word to translate because it, it's capturing an emotion uh, given to God. Uh, throughout Scripture, you'll read, you'll find God will have things like hands and feet and mouths and eyes and, and breath and things like that. It's giving human attributes to a holy God so that we, the reader and listener, can, can understand God a little bit more and begin to uh, relate to Him. But God did not repent. If that's what your translation says, you, you kind of need to write a different word. God was not sorry. If I repent, that means I feel like I've done something wrong. If I say I'm sorry, it's because I feel like I've done maybe something to you wrong. But the word means is that God looked upon his creation, he regretted it, and he felt sorrow. It was a word capturing that God was heartbroken as he looked at his world that he created for good, and he saw how sin had so corrupted them and pulled them away from his presence that he was heartbroken. He was ill. 
And as he looks and investigates creation, what we can learn is that God takes a very personal interest in our lives. There's this belief that God is a God that is somebody or something that is just out there and we're just kind of here going about. But Scripture reveals the exact opposite. The God is continuously intervening in our life. He's continuing looking upon. And what Scripture also reveals, just as we come here in chapter 6 of Genesis, that one day we will all stand before God, our Creator, the Lord, and we all will give account for everything that we've done in our life, and God has been watching every detail of our life. The time in the flood, God only saw evil. He saw a lack of God in everything they were doing, but there's this glimmer of hope there in verse 8. Noah, however, he found favor with God. What a sad setting in which we come into the flood. And so that's why when I see murals of happy little people and happy little animals, that's not the story of the flood. The reason the flood came, which was a worldwide destruction of planet Earth and everything that lived on it, except for those who would be in the ark, is because the heart of God was grieved because of sin. You see, sin is a very big deal to God. And sin must be dealt with and must... Uh, have a remedy too. And so what God does here with the flood is he sends a remedy to wipe out or to wash away the sins of the world. This wasn't going to be a permanent remedy. That was only going to come through Jesus Christ, but the flood points to the cross. That sin has to be dealt with before a holy God because it goes against or opposes who God is. Now some issues that concerning the flood deal with a lot of issues that go throughout the Bible. A lot of people debate certain stories in the Bible. One deals with creation, and that's a huge thing within schools today about is there a divine creator or a, an intelligent design or did we all just spontaneously combust and we're here, a big bang, we evolved from little things swimming in the ocean. Is that how it happened? So we all are seeking purpose. And so the Bible says that God created it all. He spoke it all into being. And so that's debated. You come to the flood, and this is another story in the Bible that is debated. Now, how in the world could that possibly happen? How could water cover the entire face of the earth? And, and, and it just doesn't make sense. And so there's been a lot of arguments concerning the flood as well as some other stories in Scripture. But when it comes to the flood account, one thing that I found interesting as I was preparing for this morning is that every ancient culture and every ancient religion has a flood story. Every single one. Matter of fact, the man by the name of J.H. Walton says there are three major documents from Mesopotamia that offer an account of the flood. There's a Sumerian, an Akkadian, and a Giglamesh epic, which is Babylonian. These three are, are Mesopotamian, Babylonian, and Greek in nature. He goes on to write, in all the accounts, the intention was to wipe out all of humanity, flooding as much of the land as was necessary to accomplish that purpose. See, in every flood story in, in, in ancient culture, civilizations, and ancient religion, all point to mankind being the problem. That's exactly what Scripture says. Now, there are some differences in those and what we find in the Bible. There's differences on why it happened. There's differences on the individual who was used in order to create some sort of vessel. In some stories, there's a point where people didn't necessarily have to build a boat if they just went to the highest mountain, they could escape the flood and then they would survive. Some stories tell of gods who are just sitting back and say, well, let mankind die. 
You know, they're all pain and they're all suffering. They're all evil. Just let them die until at the very last moment, one of the gods steps in and says, all right, I'm going to save you, which prompts the other gods to do that. So there's so many stories of the flood and why that should be interesting to us because when we look in Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9, there was one man who found favor with God and from that one man, his wife and his three sons and their wives were all put in an ark, which was not a carnival cruise, it was basically a chest of wood that floated, okay? This was not something Noah was going to you know, steer on the water and like, let's go over there. They were at the mercy of God in this boat. But from one family, every single individual, every single culture, every single religion came from. So when it comes to the flood, what God was basically doing is he was resetting or recreating creation. The difference between this and what happened in Genesis 1 and 2 is sin was already involved in it. Scripture tells us, if you look there in verse 9 of chapter 6, says, these are the family records of Noah, and that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries, and Noah walked with God. So even though there may be differences when it comes to flood stories, <clears throat> the underlying truth is that something was wrong with mankind. <clears throat> and as we have all these differences dealing with religions and cultures, and they go from uh, the, the Orient to Africa to South America to, to Greek to Rome, to Europe, these differences are because as Noah and his sons come out of the ark in Genesis chapter 9, there is one son who goes towards God and follows God and has a relationship with God. And his other sons begin to slip further and further away, and so do their descendants. But they could not deny there was some sort of natural worldwide catastrophe and so they passed down the stories of the flood and then eventually got switched and changed. So how can we believe that the Bible got it right? That's the question. Well, when you look in the New Testament, the Old Testament is hardly debated, but um, let's just play with the idea for a second. When you look in the New Testament, and we're believed to have a very accurate New Testament compared to the original Scriptures, you look in Matthew chapter 24, you know what Jesus talked about in that moment? Noah and the flood. He talked about how it would be as, as, as in the days of Noah when people were doing whatever they thought was right, and the day of judgment will come upon the earth, and there will be one who will no longer be in a field and one who will no longer be in a bed, and it will be just as the days of Noah. Jesus spoke about Noah and the historical flood that we have in the Bible like it was real. He believed it to be truth. You go to Peter, one of Jesus' followers. He writes about it in his second letter in chapter 3, and it speaks about how it won't be as in water as in the days of Noah, but it will be by fire this time. So Peter, who is a follower of Jesus, and a Jewish individual who held to what we call the Old Testament, believed in a historical flood. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 points to the faith of Noah and his faith in building an ark to escape the waters of the flood, which means that he believed that this was an historical event that happened and that we should trust it. When it comes to us today, we have to believe that the Word of God is the Word of God and is truth. See, the Bible is never meant to be a science book. It's not meant to be a science book, a geography book, a math book, history book. It's meant to reveal God. 
so that God's people, us, would come to understand who God is and His ways and so that we can conform and transform into His likeness. That's what the Bible's for. And so when we look at stories in the Bible, particularly the flood or creation or Sodom and Gomorrah or, you know, the, the plagues and Red Sea and all those sort of things, we look at those stories, it isn't a book that we are supposed to look at and try to rationalize. How did that happen? How did that work? It isn't necessarily a book that we have to figure out every single detail. It's a book that we are to look at and we are to have faith that God gave us his word so that we can live in response to it. And the Bible says that the flood happened. The debates within Christian circles are, are three. One is that the flood story in Genesis chapter 6 is a hyperbole. What a hyperbole is, is basically a fish story. You know fish stories? I caught a fish and... It wouldn't even fit on the boat, right? I mean, it gets to the point, it's such an exaggeration that it doesn't even capture what really happened. And so there's a belief, even in the Christian world, that the flood is only a hyperbole. It's an exaggeration that kids would tell their parents the story so they would understand God's view towards sin and God's wrath towards sin so they, in fact, would not sin. But it's, it's just an exaggeration. The issue with that, if the flood is an exaggeration, then how do we decipher if anything else in Scripture is an exaggeration? Jesus believed the flood is the way the flood is recorded in Scripture. Peter believed it, the writer of Hebrews believed it. The other idea, the other debate concerning the flood is that it is only a parable. Much like Jesus told parables in the New Testament, he told them to capture a spiritual truth so that God's people would respond to that truth and live accordingly to it. And the flood didn't actually happen. It's only a story that the narrator of Genesis gives us so that we can come to understand, once again, sin, God's view of sin, and how God's going to deal with sin. But it didn't actually happen. It's just a parable. Again, the issue with that is we open that, that door, then we can begin to question every single incident that God did in Scripture. Is, did it actually happen? Is God really a God of power? God really a God of miracles? Does God really care for His people in such a way that He has compassion on them to save them? The final Debate is, it's just a legend. You know, it's one of those stories you just pass down through time and, and you tell around campfires. Again, same implication apply. Reveals sin, reveals God's view of sin, and also reveal God's mercy and grace uh, towards those individuals who are in sin. The issue with all of these is it brings into question the validity of Scripture. Do we believe God can do whatever He wants? Because He is God. Do we believe He is a God of compassion? That's what the word regret means. That when God saw mankind and their wickedness and their sin, He regretted. He, he did not enjoy what He saw, but at the same moment in His holiness, in His absolute power and authority, He had compassion towards them. He loved them still. He regretted that sin had become so prevalent in their lives to pull them away from his relationship that he, he was driven to do something and enter Noah. Noah is an individual who is a type of savior in the Old Testament. He is the instrument to which God would use. He is not the savior, but an instrument which God would use to save mankind. The reading there in verse 9 is Noah was a righteous man. When it says Noah was a righteous man, what it meant is that Noah lived his life right in the eyes of God. 
Noah didn't have a Bible like we would have today. He would have basically stories that were passed down from his ancestors. But through those stories and his understanding of God, Noah directed his life in the way that he felt God would want him to live it. When it says there in verse 9 that Noah was blameless among his contemporaries, that word blameless does not imply that Noah was sinless. Noah was still a sinful man. God uses individuals who wrestle with sin. It implies that Noah lived a life that according to the word and will of God that he understood that he was set apart. He was different than all the other people of his generation. And that always makes me question. It says blameless among his contemporaries or among his generation. How righteous and blameless was Noah? The information we're given about Noah's world and Noah's contemporaries or generation is that they're all wicked. They're all doing evil. And that doesn't seem right that Noah would be judged upon other people's wickedness and evil. But here's the thing we got to consider. Noah was alone. Noah did not have a small group to go to. He did not have a church he could go and gather in. He did not have people who were supporting him and pushing him on and encourage him to continue to fight the faith, continue to push after and press on. He did not have a Bible he could turn to and read every single morning or every single night. He was alone spiritually in a world, and yet in his aloneness, he was focused on who God was and living a life pleasing to him. Noah was not intimidated by the world around him. He was going to live his life according to the word and will of God, no matter what other people thought, and that's what set Noah apart. He did not imitate the world because he lived a life pleasing to God. God used him in an incredible way just like God wants to use you and me today. So God comes to Noah and tells Noah, hey, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to send a massive flood, and I need you to build an ark, which, like I said, is a a chest. And as we read through Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9, once again, it appears like a relatively short period of time for all this amount of water to come upon the earth. We're told that it flooded for 40 days, right? 40 days and 40 nights. But what Scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11 is that not only was water coming down from the heavens, but water was bursting up from the depths. So water was coming from below and from above for 40 days. Now just imagine what that would be like if you're Noah. See, we've seen floods and hurricanes and and tsunamis and rivers going up, and maybe you've had puddles in your yard because it rained hard for a couple hours. And that water's only coming from above. But this water's coming from all over the place. And as Noah is gathering the animals and getting into the ark, do you think he was singing Kumbaya? I bet he was scared. It was complete chaos. The creation was at war with sinful man. And as he gets in there, and though we only read a couple chapters, what we're told in Scripture is that it was in, Noah was 600 years old, verse 6, when the flood came, came upon the water. And if you look later in chapter 7, we can do the math, and we can find out that when Noah came out, he was 700 years old. Or, I'm sorry, he was in his 601st year, which means that he was in the ark with all the animals and all his family for a year and about 10 days. So it flooded for 40, but it took a year and 10 days for all the water to go away. 
That's a long time. That's a long time. And I, the only image or video I've ever seen that's actually depicted this well, and I'm not promoting this series because I don't agree with everything in this series, um, but if you remember several years ago, there was the Bible series, mini-series that came on TV. Um, by the way, that, is, that series isn't entirely biblically accurate, just letting you know, so watch it with, with the Bible in hand. But if you remember, that series begins with the ark and Noah and the ark, and the waters are pushing it back and forth, and it is violent. Now, if you, and it's you and your family, everything else on the earth is dead. Where would your emotions be in that moment? Would you be smiling with all the animals? We made it. There's a lot of uncertainty in this ark. God is doing something he's never done before, and what Scripture reveals that he will never do again. The issue that reason Noah was chosen for such a task is because he walked with God. He had a relationship with him. The phrase walk with God in verse 9 of chapter 6 is a phrase that was only used one other time in Scripture so far. And it deals with Noah's great-grandfather Enoch. The Scripture says he walked with God and then he was not. Or he was no more because God took him. What it tells us is Noah was chosen by God because Noah stood out. And nowhere in the flood account do you find Noah asking God questions. Noah complaining, God, why me? Or Noah even debating with God why he would even do this. See, I think Noah, because he walked with God, he looked at the world and he said, you know what, this is right. This is what needs to happen. Because this world is slowly killing itself. If we continue on in the story, another clue we have into Noah's righteousness. Look in chapter seven, or chapter six, verse twenty-two. Chapter six, verse twenty-two says Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him, and that's how after God had told him how to build the ark. When the Lord reveals Noah what kind of animals you are to take, chapter seven, verse five, it says Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. You can continue on down to verse 9 of chapter 7. We find the same phrase, just as God had commanded him. In chapter 7 and verse 16, we find the same phrase, just as God had commanded him. What was Noah's righteousness based upon? What was his blamelessness? What was his walking with God? How do, we, how do we imitate that so that we are instruments that God uses to bring salvation to this world? <coughs> Noah was faithfully obedient to the word of the Lord. He trusted that God knew what he was talking about. He trusted that even though he couldn't understand it, he couldn't rationalize, he couldn't figure out that it was the right thing to do and he was going to have faith in God. So when it comes to our life today, what people need to see in Christians is that we are faithfully obedient to the Word of God. We may not like it. We may not understand it. We may not want to spend a whole year and 10 days in a boat full of animals. But we're going to do it because that's what God commands us to do. Noah is righteous because of his obedience. The results of Noah's faithful obedience is that he and his family were saved. They were saved from God's wrath. They were saved from God's judgment. 
And so if we turn the pages and go into the New Testament, we find that God does not change. And the same criteria holds, that he is looking for individuals who have faith in him and will trust him and be obedient to his word. Matter of fact, Jesus said that he knows that you love him if you are obedient to his commands in, in the Gospel of John. The letter of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, right, after it's, uh, right before it speaks of Noah, in verse 6, it says, Now without faith it is impossible to please God. James tells us that faith has to have works. I mean, we can't just say, I believe God, I trust God, and then not do what God says to do. It has to be evidence in our life. Jesus called it fruit in the gospel. Noah produced fruit of faithful obedience to God, and this is why God used Noah in incredible ways. This is how God wants to use us. We can be faithfully obedient to what God reveals in His Word. Another question that comes with the flood is, will this ever happen again? And the answer is, no. Look in Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. I established my covenant with you, this is the Lord speaking to Noah, that never again will every creature be wiped out by flood waters. There will never be again be a flood to destroy the earth. No, it's not going to be by flood, but if you turn to 2 Peter... In chapter 3, in verses 5 through 7. For in the past... Whoop, that's the wrong passage. <laughs> that was about women submitting to husbands. That's Jason's favorite. Um, first Peter, or Second Peter, chapter 3. I said First Peter. Verses 5 through 7. It says, They deliberately overlooked this by the word of God. The heavens came into being long ago. And the earth was brought about from water and through water, and through these the world of that time perished when it was flooded. What's Peter writing about here? When was the world flooded? What have we been talking about, right? Peter goes on to say, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for what? Fire. Being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. See, God revealed to Noah, I'm never going to flood it again, and God is faithful to His promise. But God also reveals that there's going to come a time where God is once again going to call all people to give an account for the way they live their life. And this time it will not be by flood, but this time it will be by fire, purification, or destruction. Jesus referred to hell in such a way that it was a fire that continually burned but never completely consumed what it was burning. This is the language which Peter is drawing to. What can we take from the flood? <clears throat> well, I think the first thing we should take, excuse me, is the way God looks at sin. What made God bring the flood? It's because the wickedness and every intention of mankind was evil. It was in opposition to God. And how did God view that? In pain and sorrow. See, God takes sin very seriously. Because sin, whether it is big or small, whether it's a little sin or a big sin, whether it's a white lie or a real lie, I don't know how that works, it's all sin to God, and sin is in opposition to the will of God and the goodness of God. And so when God sees sin, He sees opposition to His love, His faithfulness, and His will. 
And so when he sees sin in his children, you know what it does to him? It breaks his heart. Because my wrestling with sin and your wrestling with sin tells God, our Father who loves us, we don't really trust you. We don't really think you have your, our best in mind. We think that even though you told us not to take of the fruit, it looks really good. And it breaks God's heart because God wants to give us life. Noah got life, didn't he? He wasn't sinless, but he lived a life that was pleasing to God. And this is what God calls us to in the new covenant under Jesus Christ. It calls to a life that is holy and pleasing to him. That runs from sin, that flees from the devil and submits to God. Second thing we learn is that it is by faith that protects us from God's wrath towards sin. Noah believed, right? He obeyed everything that God commanded him to do. And so the scripture tells us as well that it is by faith that we escape the wrath of God. So this time we're not placing our faith in a boat made of gopher wood. This time we're placing our faith of a cross in which our Savior hung on. As Noah was shut in in the ark and God shut him in and protected him, he covered him round about from his wrath that was going to flood the earth. So when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and the blood of the Lamb, we are covered in, we are shut in from the wrath of God that is going to come down upon all sin. So I think the reality is that sometimes we get so focused on today, our retirement, or when we die, but Scripture reveals we need to be more spiritually ready for what is coming. We need to be people who are ready for God to return. When Jesus used the story of Noah and the flood in Matthew chapter 24, it was in the context of being ready. For you do not know the hour or the day will come, but it will come as, in, as if in, in Noah, in the days of Noah and the flood. People were going about and doing their daily tasks. And then God's judgment came and they weren't ready. Are we spiritually ready? Are we ready for that day? Are we living our life in such a way right now that people can see that we have faith in the one thing that will save us? I think a principle we can learn from Noah is even though Noah was alone, he did not let the world change him, but instead he changed the world. And it's by our faith in Christ, our trust in God, which God wants to use us as his ambassadors to change this world. I think there's a lot of similarities. You watch the news and you watch how people just seem to get along more and more with one another, right? No. People don't want anything to do with God. When I look at the news and I look on Facebook, they don't want anything to do with God because they don't want a Lord or a Master over their life. And Christians, here's the scary thing, Christians are backing off. I don't want to insult them. I, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, get into an argument. I don't want to. And so what we're doing when we say, I don't want to. We're allowing the world to impact us more than we are impacting the world 
for the kingdom. Noah didn't care. Well, I kind of have to read between the lines with that. He didn't allow the world to intimidate him. He was going to be faithful no matter what the world was doing, no matter what the world was saying. And I bet, because I've never seen sin look you know, unattractive. If it was, it would be so easy not to do it, right? I imagine as Noah looked, and he, can you imagine building that boat and everybody else is out partying? How frustrating that would be? But what did he do? He remained faithful. So Scripture reveals that God welcomes those who have remained faithful to the end. We say that's our lot. If we were Noah, would God use us? How am I living my life right now? Is it according to the Word of God? Is it walking with God in an intimate relationship with Him? Or do I look more like the world? Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 2, that therefore by the mercies of God, we should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice no longer conforming to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the renewal of our mind. Peter tells us that we are aliens and strangers in this world because God has set us apart, that once we were not a people of of mercy, but now we have been given mercy. Once we were people of darkness, but now we have come into His marvelous light and we are to live our life among the Gentiles that they would glorify God on the day He visits us. See, God has set us apart just as He set Noah apart to go out into this world, to bring the news that God loves them, but we all will stand before God one day to be judged. Final thing I want us to see when it comes to the story of Noah and the flood is despite the wickedness, despite the sin, despite the evil, God still provided a way of escape. still provides a way of escape. Despite our backsliding, despite our shortcomings, despite our constant (coughs) wrestling with sin, despite our being able to relate to Paul in Romans 8 when he says, I do the things I shouldn't do and the things I shouldn't do, I do. Despite that constant wrestling match and that battle within us, despite all that, God still provides a way of escape so we don't get put under the wrath of the holy God for our sin. And that is through Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. If you've been living your life saying, you know, I'm going to be a good person, I'm just going to do good things, and I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to do all these spiritual checklist things, the reality is Scripture reveals you're still lost and you're still in your sin. But God has brought you here this morning to escape the wrath, to escape the judgment for your sin, and that is only by faith in Jesus Christ. As God shut Noah in the ark, so God shut his son up in a tomb. But Jesus came out of the tomb that we might have complete forgiveness because he died once for all, for all of our sins, for all time. We might be saved and be justified before God. And it is only by Jesus and Jesus alone. If you're here this morning and you've been trying to just be a good person or do the right thing or just go to church enough or sing when you're supposed to sing and do all that stuff, then that is great. That is awesome. You're probably a wonderful human being, but the reality is you're still lost. 
And without Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you're destined for the judgment that is coming with fire. But that's not God's plan or purpose for your life. He wants you to be saved. So we're going to sing a song of invitation. And if you've yet to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to trust in Him, to place your faith in Him, and to receive His righteousness, I'm going to be standing here. I'm going to ask you to come down and just let it be known and say, Pastor Mike, I need Jesus. Don't miss this opportunity. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the challenge for me this week was, am I living such a life that is different from the world? And just have to look, you know, am I someone that God sees as set apart by the way I'm living my life and trusting Him? I can't answer that for you, but I know this, the Spirit of God comes upon us and reveals that. However you need to respond this morning, I'm going to ask you to do this. Let's stand as we pray. Father, thank you for this day. <clears throat> thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you used individuals like Noah. Didn't have it all figured out. Wasn't perfect. Wasn't without sin. But Lord, you used him for an incredible task. And that you call us as your people to do the same thing today. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to trust you. Help us to go out into this world and to bring light and hope. Lord, this world is hurting. Father, forgive us those opportunities that we've missed because we've been so focused on ourselves. Father, I pray in this time, in this place, that right now, for the individual in this room that has yet to accept you as their Lord and Savior, they've yet to make a personal confession of faith, or they may be a great person, may be doing all the right things, but they know that they're not saved. But you give them the courage to step out and to come down and let it be known. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you, Lord, for providing for us a way of escape, a way back to being a new creation in you. Forgive us where we failed you. Praise on your son's name.